And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Thomas More Society Special Counsel, Christopher Ferrara. Uh, Christopher, it's an honor to have you on with us again. Well, thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. You know, the last time we talked, you had filed a lawsuit against New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, his Attorney General Letitia James, and New York City Mayor de Blasio. And your lawsuit was on behalf of two Catholic priests from upstate New York, a trio of Orthodox Jewish congregants from Brooklyn, for violation of civil rights by prejudicial orders and selective enforcement. The federal lawsuit was filed on June the 10th in United States District Court for the Northern District of New York, charged the governor, attorney general, and mayor with violating the plaintiff's rights to free exercise of religion, freedom of speech, assembly, and expressive association, and due process under the First and Fourteenth Amendments to the United States Constitution. Now, a federal judge has ruled, and we'd like to hear from you, Christopher, on what the outcome was. Okay, just by way of clarification, this really wasn't a selective enforcement case as such. This wasn't a case where a neutral law was being selectively enforced. Rather, it was a case of a system of regulations in which actual exceptions were created for particular groups, and the disfavored groups did not get the benefit of the same exceptions. So let's talk about the outdoors first. The outdoor gathering limitations under this COVID-19 lockdown regime that Governor Cuomo imposed, which I consider to be completely ridiculous, by the way, were at first 10 people outdoors, and then that was expanded to 25 people outdoors in the North Country. Well, what happened there was that these restrictions went right out the window as soon as the George Floyd protests began, Thousands were marching in the streets of New York City. They were crowding the entire length of the Brooklyn Bridge and the Manhattan Bridge. They were packed into Cadman Plaza, thousands in that plaza. And Mayor de Blasio personally appeared and addressed that gathering without even wearing a face mask. So immediately it was apparent that these defendants, the governor, the attorney general, and the mayor of New York City, didn't take seriously their own guidelines, at least not when it comes to the groups they favored. So what they did was create a massive exception to the 10-person limit for protests. And that later expanded to include Juneteenth celebrations, Black Lives Matter demonstrations, Black Trans Lives Matter demonstrations, basically any kind of mass protest that they favored. So we, we uh, obviously brought that to the judge's attention. Now, on the indoor gatherings, the limitation was 10 people in the lower part of the state. That has simply uh, subsequently been increased to 25% of indoor capacity. Now, only houses of worship are in the 25% indoor capacity limitation. Just houses of worship. Any kind of business entity, Nonprofit entity, homeless shelter, special education classrooms, these are all allowed 50% indoor capacity or 100% indoor capacity. There was no justification offered by the state for putting religion alone in that very narrow 
ghetto of 25% indoor capacity. So the judge corrected that injustice as well and said basically religious indoor gatherings have to be treated the same way as indoor business gatherings and other kinds of indoor gatherings in phase two, which is at least 50% for some businesses and up to 100% for other businesses. And so when phase two becomes phase three, the churches will move along with everybody else in those categories of 50% or 100%, instead of being confined all alone in a 25% indoor limitation category. So major injustices were corrected, and uh, the court recognized that you can't grant exceptions for secular activities that cause transmission of the virus, just as much as an indoor gathering for religion would do, without giving the same exception to the indoor religious gathering. You can't just discriminate on the basis of the purpose of the gathering. The Sixth Circuit put it best best in another case, essentially saying that when people gather together, whether it's indoors or outdoors, and there's a risk of viral transmission, the virus doesn't care why they gathered. It only cares that they gathered. So the nature of the gathering should be irrelevant. And the judge in this case made sure that that was the case going forward. That's why we got the preliminary injunction. And what does a preliminary injunction mean for those of us who don't know too much about law? It's an order of the court that says you can't do the following things temporarily while the court proceeds to a final hearing. That's why it's called preliminary. And in order to get a preliminary injunction, you have to show the court that you're likely to succeed on the merits of your claim. So what are the merits of our claim? The merits of our claim are simply the following. If you're going to have mass protests, all the outdoor gathering limitations have to be eliminated. You can't just have protests for some and no gatherings for others. Or as one, uh, one court has put it, you can't have freedom for me but not for thee. Right. And the other claim, the indoor gathering limits, we, we show that you can't arbitrarily say religion alone gets only 25% of indoor occupancy. So what the preliminary injunction says is the governor, the attorney general, and the mayor are forbidden to enforce any outdoor limitation on gatherings for religion, and are also forbidden to impose any tighter restriction on indoor gatherings than the, one, the gathering limits they impose on businesses of various kinds in phase two. So we have equality now, both indoors and outdoors, with other groups. That's great. And uh, specifically, what about the masks outdoor? Are there any restrictions left on that now? Well, the judge says we should practice social distancing outdoors the way other groups are required to practice it. So if you can socially distance, you don't need a mask, only if you're within six feet of people. Okay. Now, of course, the protesters are not practicing social, oh, distancing, no. social distancing, and not all of them are wearing masks. But be that as it may, uh, we, we have equality of treatment now. We're not treated differently from other groups under this regime. Now, the next phase of this, I don't know whether it will happen in this case or subsequent litigation, has to be to challenge the pseudoscientific underpinnings of these lockdown regimes. Where, where is there evidence that everyone putting a piece of cloth over his face is going to stop the spread of the virus? There's study after study after study which shows that even formally engineered masks with two and three layers of protection offer no significant protection against the spread of a virus. And that's why until April, 
the WHO, the CDC, and the Surgeon General under Trump were all saying masks are not necessary. All of a sudden in April, they do a 180 and declare that nothing is more important than having a mask on your face. To me, this is quite mysterious. And I think that in New York State in particular, there's a blatantly political element to this demand that everybody wear masks. And uh, it borders on a kind of hysteria now with the general public. People think that they have to have a piece of cloth over their faces to protect them from this virus, which they've been led to believe is floating around in the air like a poison gas. The whole thing is absurd. It's a superstition. And the next phase of this attack on these lockdown regimes has to be a scientific attack using real science, real studies, and peer-reviewed journals which pre-existed these lockdowns. And these studies, one after another, show that wearing masks by the general public, by healthy people, does nothing. That's Stop interesting. The spread of the virus. Now, um, so that's the next phase. But right now, at least, we have equality under the scheme as it exists. Now, what what impresses me here, and today we're talking with attorney Christopher Ferrara uh, with the Thomas More Society. What impresses me here, Christopher, is that um, here is a group of people, including yourself, who did not just sit back and let our constitutional rights be steamrolled. Uh, by the state, and um, I think there's a there's a good lesson there. Um, I, I wish that more people would be willing to say, you know what, uh, I'm going to stand up and be counted and make a stink about this because uh, these constitutional rights for a God fearing people, let's put it that way, are important, and and we should not just be passive about it. Of course. And that's what the courts are there for. Yeah. But unfortunately, you have a, a dynamic in both religious constituencies, Judaism and Catholicism, that uh, makes it difficult. You have a mainstream, and unfortunately, in both contexts, the mainstream has become a go-along, to get-along kind of religion. That's pretty much at peace with the powers that be. Mm-hmm. So it fell to the Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn, who are very courageous and countercultural people, and the two priests in upstate New York who belong to a traditionalist Catholic society to take up the challenge. The priests are not affiliated with a particular bishop, although they have universal faculties from the Pope himself to mm-hmm. hear confessions, though they're certainly Catholics, but they're not part of the mainstream establishment, the establishment that's basically allied with the powers that be and doesn't want to offend them. So now we find in the aftermath of this ruling, in the Catholic constituency, people like Cardinal Dolan saying, well, that's nice that the judge made that ruling, but, you know, we're, we're going to stick with the 25% indoor capacity uh. that our, our kindly and wonderful baby-killing Governor Cuomo has laid down for us. And I, I find that appalling. I mean... You just brought up something that really touches on the heart of one of the problems I've had with this whole thing, and that was uh, when Governor Cuomo made some kind of a statement that we don't want one person to die on one hand, and then on the other hand, he was celebrating uh, the killing of babies via abortion, and that just smacked of complete insincerity to me. Well, the whole thing reeks of official hypocrisy, and the stench is overpowering. 
And you know, it, it goes far beyond saying you know, 25,000 people can march for George Floyd, but you can't have 10 kids in a playground in Brooklyn. The police will kick them out of the playground. Yeah. It, it extends to life itself. And, you know, you hear them saying, oh, every life is precious. The same people who, when this is over, whenever it ends, will be calling for death panels, passive euthanasia, getting rid of the old people that are, that are unwanted or it's that true. want to commit suicide. These are the same people that are in favor of assisted suicide. And, of course, the same people who are in favor of abortion throughout nine months of pregnancy, even at the very moment of birth. So it's sickening to hear people like this governor talk about how every life is precious and how, oh, so concerned they are that absolutely no one be affected in a, in a serious way and risk death because of this virus. And, of course, it was Governor Cuomo who was running away from his own decision earlier on to send COVID-positive patients back into nursing homes to infect everybody else so that thousands died. And that is very true. That is he very true. That. And now he's trying to blame everybody but himself for that. So uh, you see the outcome of this lawsuit with the federal judge quite positive, I assume. Yeah, it, it's a great result. It shows that common sense can prevail, that evidence prevails over passion and prejudice, and that if people are determined to bring a challenge in cases like this, when the stars align, if you want to put it that way, justice can be achieved. That's the only way we have to achieve justice now, or less defense of the courts. And and so we we have to have recourse to the the courts because these COVID-19 regimes represent an unlimited expansion of executive power. All they have to do now is declare an emergency, and you lose all your rights instantaneously. Yes. And they're not done with this. They're going to do this again if they can get away with it. Mm-hmm. So we need, we need to bring actions in various courts now to lay down some precedents and protect us in the future. And in case you've been watching, now they're talking about another swine flu that might be coming from China. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what they're going to do is what they've never done before, Whenever there's a flu or a flu-like illness, now they're going to start running death tolls. They're going to run daily death tolls. If they did that in previous years with regular seasonal flu, you'd have 60, 70, 70, 80,000 people dying every year from the flu. But nobody locks down entire populations because of flu. Why? Because you can't contain a viral illness. That's the basic scientific fact that everybody's ignoring. You cannot contain a virus. And the other evil that they're now introducing is contact tracing. So for the future, we have to worry about lockdowns, contact tracing, and requiring everybody to put a mask over his face. I mean, that is social engineering on a huge scale, which will affect everybody's life radically. Let me just talk about contact tracing for a minute. Yes, please. It is absolutely preposterous to talk about contact tracing for a viral illness. If you think about it for a minute, you'll see just how ridiculous it is. So people go to a bar, and they test positive afterwards for the virus. So then they ask these people to tell you or the investigator the names of everybody they've been in contact with. But how do you know where they got the virus? Did they actually get it at the bar? Maybe they got it in a subway train. Maybe they got it at work. And by the time you contact trace all these people, uh, maybe you find that they test negative, but they could be positive the next day because they'll get the virus from someone else. Or they could be negative today, 
and you test them, and what do you say? You can't go to work because you're, um, I'm sorry, they could be positive, and you test them, and you say you can't go to work because you're positive. Well, okay, so then you go through a quarantine period imposed by the contact tracer. Then you're negative because two weeks have gone by. Then you go to work, and you get reinfected, which, is, which they're claiming can happen, by someone else. Or maybe you still have the virus in you in transmissible amounts, and you give it to somebody else. In other words, it's a sieve. It's an absolute societal sieve. It's impossible to trace, unlike, say, a venereal disease. Because a venereal disease is transmitted to a limited number of people and at least permanent damage or indicators in the people infected. So that's, that's possible to contact trace with a venereal disease. They're pretending this is like a venereal disease. This has never been done in the history of viral epidemics. It's just another method of putting people under the control of the state in ways that are unprecedented, along with the whole COVID-19 lockdown regime itself. This is a pretty terrifying development. I have some concerns about the contact tracing. Not that all of it is bad, but much of it is, particularly when we rely on artificial intelligence and the machines are watching your faces, much like happens in communist China. And you know that the uh, the human rights record there is is terrible, and uh, I'd hate to see us adopt that kind of an approach here. Uh, we've already seen some people um, with this kind of a hysteria where, let's say somebody is not wearing a mask and person A is not wearing a mask and person B feels that they should, uh, yelling at them in public, shaming them. Uh, just, just Spreading tr- the virus, too, while yelling and grieving. <laughs> yeah, potentially. And uh, I'd hate to see us go to this um, kind of high-tech contact tracing. I, I feel very, very uncomfortable about that. Especially since, you know, one, one point you want to make about that, First of all, the presumption is that asymptomatic people will transmit the virus. There's no evidence of any significant transmission of the virus by asymptomatic people. It doesn't happen with the flu. If you're not coughing and sneezing, you're probably not going to transmit the virus. Why would it happen with this virus? What they're doing here is they're saying in New York, 19 million people, that every person has to assume that the other 18,999,999 people in the state of New York are going to transmit the virus. So everybody has to be six feet away from everybody else or wear a mask. Now, why isn't that ridiculous on its face? <laughs> Absolute nonsense. Well, it's, uh, it's all been very troubling to people with just a little bit of common sense. And um, the problem is I'm, I'm not a medical doctor, so I... I don't want to say too much, but something something just doesn't fit with this one here. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, this ruling just came out. Federal judges ruled, and I'd like you to summarize for, for the people what the ruling was, but has Andrew Cuomo apologized to the churches? Oh, no, there's no apology. In fact, he, he, insists, he insisted that at the same time he allowed thousands to march for various protest movements, it was perfectly legitimate to limit gatherings to 10 people or 25 people. Mm. So we cite in our papers uh, a press conference where he praises the protesters. He says he stands with the protesters. And then a woman asks him a simple question. Well, if you can have thousands of people marching for protesters, why can't this Pakistani family of immigrants attend their daughter's high school graduation? And he literally sneered at this woman and hmm. said, haven't you been listening to everything I've been saying for 96 days? 
<laughs> people will die, he said, if they go to a high school graduation. But not if they're, you know, in a crowd of 25,000 people screaming and yelling on the Brooklyn Bridge. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, hypocritical. it makes no sense at and, all. No, no. What it really is, it's just social social control for its own sake. We will tell you when you can gather and for what reasons you can gather. There's no other interpretation of it now. Yeah, that's it. But, you know, in New Jersey, Governor Murphy had the decency, once he revealed his double standard, to at least issue an executive order saying, essentially, you know what, I was marching with the protesters, so now everybody can march. For whatever reason they want outdoors, if it's political or religious, no more outdoor limitations on gatherings. A bit you know more consistent. Shows? Yeah, very. But it shows that the outdoor gathering limitations were never necessary in the first place. No, they weren't. We're told that we have to have these limitations to save lives, but the minute they see gatherings they like, they forget the, that their claim that the gatherings are necessary to save lives, and they say, basically, as Governor Murphy did, well, never mind, you can all gather outdoors now. So people <laughs> were deprived of their freedom for months. For no good reason. <laughs> now, uh, what I'd like you to do, if you wouldn't mind, one more time, uh, Counsel Christopher Ferrara, can you summarize the outcome of that federal judge's ruling? Right. The judge says that the outdoor gathering limitations that the governor imposed of 10 people or 25 people outdoors, depending on which part of the state you were in, they're gone because the governor himself has destroyed them by authorizing mass protests good for the goose, it's good for the gander. People can march for George Floyd, which is their right. Then they can gather for religion or any other purpose outdoors without any numerical limitation. Indoors, the court said, you can't leave religion alone restricted to the use of only 25% of indoor space and houses of worship, when all kinds of other businesses and entities have at least 50% usage or 100% usage. So churches have to be given the same rights as businesses in terms of indoor usage, 50% at least in, in phase two, and when they move into the phases where there's more capacity, the churches will move along with all the other businesses and entities. No longer is the church premises or the synagogue premises in a ghetto of 25%. So justice was done. It was a great ruling. Uh, well, praise the Lord for this. And um, if someone wants to learn more about the Thomas More Society, uh, maybe read about you, read any of your writings, Christopher. Uh, is there a web address where they can go? You can go to thomasmoresociety.org. Well, that's simple enough. And, and if you want to uh, read anything I've written, just Google my name. <laughs> now, uh, you know, I'm, I'm considered uh, a reactionary in terms of religion and politics because my views are not with anything like the mainstream. Of course, the mainstream today would be considered absolutely appalling by even a Democrat of 50 years ago, the way things are going. Yes. Uh, you know, I, as a lawyer, I, I follow the law and I, I do what's required by the courts and the principles of jurisprudence. So I have two hats, one as a writer yeah. and one as a lawyer. Now we have uh, quite a few families that listen who are homeschooling families. I like to think that some of their kids will grow up and possibly pursue a career in law uh, for the right reasons. Any advice? For, any advice for that kid growing up? How to how to I do, do that? I do have advice. If you think that you want to be a lawyer, here's what you have to do. Step one: study your head off in high school, get the highest grade you can get. 
prepare for the SAT, take prep courses, get the highest SAT score you can possibly get. Get admitted to the most selective college you can get admitted to if your faith is strong. You think that you can be a countercultural influence in your school because even in the Ivy Leagues, they have contrarian groups and your faith can actually be strengthened. That's the, that depends on the person. If you think you have a trusty sword and you can fight for your faith, get into the best possible school you can get into. And even if you don't do it in college, maybe you go to a Christian college, certainly if you're going to go to law school, First of all, the LSAT, the law school aptitude test, is absolutely critical to gaining entry to a good law school. Prepare for that as a full-time job. Take hundreds of practice tests, if you can, or at least dozens of them. Get the highest possible LSAT. Get into the best possible law school you can get into. Shoot for the Ivy League. Try to get into a top 20 law school. Because the credentials are so important if you're going to be in public interest law, you need to come from a prestigious school or at least a very respectable one. And so that's my advice. You know, get into the best schools you can get into. If your faith is strong, don't be afraid to even get into an Ivy League school if you want to be a lawyer because you need to have these credentials. And especially if you want to become a judge, you want to get onto the federal bench and change the world the way some of these conservative judges are doing. And Trump has filled every vacancy in the Court of Appeals, 200 and all. <laughs> you need to have stellar credentials. So that's what I would say. You know, we, we need people who have a faith to occupy the, these seats on the bench and to judge things from a perspective that includes not just secular considerations, but the whole spectrum of considerations that should be brought to bear on these social justice uh, questions, including the moral dimension. You know, I think it's naive to say, uh, decision-making in courts don't involve moral uh, decisions. That's of course right. they do. The liberals are constantly issuing morally-based decisions <laughs> so on, on what is right and what is wrong, and we should have gay marriage because it's, it's the right thing to do, and people have recognized that this is the right thing to do, and it's time for society to change and follow these new norms. Everything these courts are doing is pervaded with moral presumptions of one kind or another. The great constitutional scholar Hadley Arkes, uh, who later converted and became a Catholic, made that point. The liberals are judging on the basis of moral principles. The conservatives for too long have just said, you know, we follow the will of the majority. Amen. The, well, liberals don't, the liberals don't do that. Well, our guest today has been Special Counsel Christopher Ferrara of the Thomas More Society. I wish we had more time. We're out of time. Christopher, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on your show, and Godspeed to you all. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.